Hello, you're listening to Earth Matters, produced on Wurundjeri country in the studios of 3CR and broadcast across this land on the Community Radio Network. We're bringing you environmental and social justice stories. I'm Jem Rummeld. Where is the internet? Is it just hanging out in the air? It doesn't produce pollution, it just is, right? Wrong. The internet is physical. From phones to modems to mobile towers to intercontinental fibre optic cables to data centres, it takes a lot of energy to keep it running all over the world for millions of people, 24-7. The internet has an environmental cost and it's pretty big. To broach this huge subject, we visited the Centre for Energy Efficient Telecommunications at the University of Melbourne and spoke to Director Kerry Hinton and PhD candidate Fatima Jalali. What is a data centre? Uh, well, a, a data centre is a, a very large facility which may be located anywhere on the planet and this facility takes in information from lots of many people very widely distributed around the planet, processes it and then sends back other information or it may store data. So, for example, Facebook photographs. If we save a Facebook photograph, it doesn't sit on a computer in our house, it actually goes off to one of these data centres, which could be just about anywhere. What is a core network? Yeah, once the uh, data goes from the first telephone exchange, it then goes into what's called the edge and core network. So uh, a um, metropolitan area, which, say, services the metropolitan area of Melbourne, that's a part of the edge core network, and that sends data, say, from Dandenong to Oakley, OK? But if you want to send data from, say, Dandenong to Sydney, then it goes through the core network, which connects Melbourne and Sydney, or perhaps even Melbourne and, Bri- uh, Melbourne and Los Angeles. So the core network is really the, where the big, heavy amounts of traffic go around the planet. And are they through cables? Typically they're through um, cables, optical fibre cables, that's right. Most capacity in a network, once it gets above just a few megabits per second, starts going through a fibre. Between your house and the telephone exchange today, typically it's a bit of copper. That's the so-called DSL networks. But for those people who are lucky enough to have a fibre to the home, then they'll have fibre all the way to the house, through the whole network to the far end. Mm-hmm. And does that mean that there are cables running along the ocean floors between all of the countries... There certainly are. In fact, there's thousands of them. There's thousands and thousands of kilometres of cable under the ocean. Um, Across the North Atlantic, there is a huge collection of cables, uh, or similarly across the Pacific. And there are cables that ring almost all the continents, for example, Africa, uh, South America. There are cables that run down the coastline under the water a few kilometres out, and then a piece of cable branches off into the land so that you can connect to all the cities close to the coast. Wow. What is the Internet of Things? The idea behind the Internet of Things is kind of what a lot of people see as the next evolutionary stage of the Internet. Okay, so the Internet today consists primarily of people connecting with each other via computers. And um, then, of course, more recently, mobile phones are connecting to the Internet. Um, And so, you know, there are millions, hundreds of millions of these things. Well, the next thought is, okay, then, let's go to the next step and... Some people may have heard of a thing called IPv6, which has been discussed over the last few years. Now, the thing about IPv6 is it's a new uh, method for attaching objects to the internet. It enables you to attach billions upon billions upon billions of objects to the internet. So the idea then was, okay, then, given the fact that this technology allows us to uh, attach billions of objects to the internet, in fact, hundreds of billions of objects to the internet, what we can do is deploy all these little sensors and monitors and actuators around the planet, OK? 
Okay, so this is not just in one place, this is around the entire planet. Now what these objects will do is they'll monitor the environment, they'll monitor you, they'll monitor your friends, they'll monitor your house, your dog, your cat, you name it. And the data that's collected will be then sent to a data centre and processed. And of course the idea is that the processing in some way enhances your life. So one example is, let's say that you're a, um, an avid um, jogger, okay, so you want to go for a run every couple of days. Uh, you buy yourself a new set of running shoes. Well, these days you can actually buy running shoes with monitors in them. Okay? So you go for a run, and the monitor in your shoes helps you understand if you're running correctly. Are you pronating correctly? Is your foot hitting the ground right? Um, perhaps you're running too slow because your heartbeat's not going up, or perhaps you're running too fast because you're going to basically have a heart attack or something like that. So the data's collected, and it's then sent to uh, a device or to a, a, a um, cloud its analysis is done, and so when you finish your run, you get home, you can log onto the internet and you can see how that run went. Now, that's just one trivial example. There are lots of other examples where you'd have water monitors out in drought-prone areas. You'd have traffic monitors to make sure that there's not congestion or if there's an accident, people can get around it and emergency services can get there. The idea is to monitor just about everything, and, and this is possible given the new technologies that are being developed. That's the Internet of Things. I'd imagine it's quite controversial and that people might feel differently about the idea of everything being monitored and having sensors all through their homes that can tell what they're doing, where they are, how they're feeling, what they're eating. Um, do you talk about these questions in, in this centre or is your realm more to look at the data and, and put that forward? We, uh, the group here tends to be more focused on the technology, but you often just can't avoid um, touching on those questions. So an example where the technology and, and the kind of social aspects directly intersect is things like security and privacy. Okay? So what happens is that, as you pointed out a moment ago, is that if the Internet of Things comes to, to fruition just about every aspect of your life will be monitored. Okay? Now, a lot of that information will be processed locally in the house. So you say, well, okay, that's all right, because I can control what, what people see. It's inside my house. The data doesn't go anywhere else, so that's all right. But in a lot of cases, that data will actually go off to a data centre elsewhere. It could be anywhere. It could be another side of the planet. And if someone can kind of break into the connection in some careful way, they might be able to monitor a lot of aspects of your life you don't want them to see. So that means that one of the key issues that we need to consider is how secure is the data that's being generated about your personal life that is sent around the other side of the planet to be processed. And so, yes, for sure, in that context, the issue of security and privacy become technological issues as well as social issues. Mm. And also for companies to better market products to you and so that raises the question of whose interest do, do these developments serve. You're listening to Earth Matters in conversation with Kerry Hinton and Fatima Jalali at the Centre for Energy Efficient Telecommunications at the University of Melbourne. We asked them to explain the environmental footprint of the internet. In the global context, today the internet as a totality consumes about 1 to 2% of the global electricity production on the planet. Now, um, up until recently, uh, the companies who were building the, the internet and all these, the, the equipment didn't really think about energy consumption. And so if we had have let things go without starting to think about that, then the amount of energy consumption that the internet would um, demand over the next decade, decade and a half, would grow from the 1% to 2% today to maybe 20 30 40% of the world's electricity production. Now, that just can't happen. The reason being is that... The, uh, increase, the annual increase in electricity production on the planet is about 3% per year. 
And, of course, that 3% has got to satisfy not just the internet and its telecommunications requirements, but everything. The increase in industry requirements, the growing, uh, developing economies, the production of the various things that we expect to see coming out of uh, in our daily lives. So that means that, that if we didn't worry about what the internet is consuming, it would get out of control. Now, fortunately, over the last few years, since about 2005, 2007, there's been a significant interest on trying to control the power consumption of the Internet of Things. And this group at, the Melbourne, at Melbourne University, along with a whole range of other groups, are now trying to work out what can we do to make sure that the energy consumption of the Internet and the Internet of Things is kept under control. OK, well, the, the, the kind of 1% to 2% figure I quoted a few minutes ago, that includes pretty much the access network and the core network, as we defined before. Um, it doesn't include the data centres, and it doesn't include uh, all the stuff inside your house. So, for example, in most houses, what happens is that there's a, a little um, device that's at the edge of the house which connects into the network. Um, in... The, ha- in the houses these days, it tends to be a DSL modem, but in the future it'll be a kind of little box that has an optical cable connected to it if we go an optical access, and it'll continue to be the, the modem if it's uh, DSL. We start there, we go into the network, <coughs> all the way through the network around the planet, and then we st- stop at, say, the data centres. The data centre calculation is not inside that 1% or 2%. And furthermore, inside the house, if you've got, say, an internet TV um, so a little internet Wi-Fi inside network inside your house, your laptops, all that, that's not included as well. If you add that stuff in, the number goes up. Mm. And I'd imagine um, phone towers are probably processing a lot more now than they used to. So how have smartphones changed the, the scene? Yes. Yes, mobile access has really changed the dynamic. Um, a few years ago, when we did the original modelling uh, of the internet power consumption, it was back in the late 2000s, 2006, 2007, and um, we then assumed that, that most people would move towards a fibre access technology because that's the most energy efficient. Um, but, of course, since then it hasn't happened. What's happened is that mobile access has just taken off, and so the figure of uh, 1% to 2%... Uh, assumed that most people are accessing the network via energy-efficient um, fibre-based access technology. But if we all move to um, wireless technology, particularly as Fadon was saying, if we all you decide to use our mobile phones to access the network, then we could be in a bit of trouble. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not as though the network will just basically kind of implode. What will happen is that Uh, One of two things, either there's just not enough money to build the mobile towers needed to provide access to everybody, and so as we find often when the internet's a bit clugged up, the kind of little clock just runs around and around and around as we wait for the YouTube video to kick in, that'll just get worse and worse. Um, It's not as though it's going to be some kind of catastrophic event, it just means that there'll be ongoing congestion and increasing congestion in the network. So that 1% to 2%, I'd imagine, could be expanded quite a lot also if you're counting the manufacture of the fibre optic cables and also the manufacture of our um, the pieces in the phones that connect to Wi-Fi. Um, can you comment on that? Yeah, yeah, that's, you're right. Uh, the 1% to 2%, as I said, assumes that, that um, we're all using a fairly energy-efficient way of accessing the network and it does not include what we call the embedded uh, carbon, which is the carbon footprint of building the stuff deploying it and then taking it out of commission and, and get, getting rid of it. Now, when I say get rid, some will be recycled, some will be resold, and but some will actually get trashed as well. 
Now, including that's really quite difficult. Um, we don't look at the full um, uh, embedded energy. We have we have looked at uh, some aspect of embedded energy, but yes, there's no doubt that that um, uh, a dramatic growth in the demand for the technologies to uh, underpin the Internet of Things and a growing internet will um, challenge the availability of the raw equipment needed to make this stuff. These days, modern electronics relies on, on properties of, of equi- uh, with materials and minerals which are not overly abundant. For example, iron. Now, you know, let's face it, we've got plenty of iron to go for quite some time, and the forecast for the use of iron is hundreds of years out. But if we go to some of the more exotic equipment, then uh, more exotic elements, then the timeline for depletion is much, much closer. And so we need to be a little bit careful about that. Absolutely. Let me explain what I mean by overall energy consumption. For example, if I say energy consumption of Facebook, uh, it uh, reminds most people of energy consumed within Facebook data centers. But in reality, uh, um, cloud applications consume energy consumption in data centers, in the transport network, uh, which is a network between end user and data centers and also uh, energy consumption um, by end user terminals. So we um, we require to consider energy consumed in transport network and end user devices as well as data centers. For example, for Facebook photo sharing, we had a, a study and our results show that uh, energy consumed in the transport network and end user devices uh, is about 60% of uh, total energy consumed for uh, Facebook data centers, which is a significant amount of uh, portion of energy consumption in the total energy consumption of uh, Facebook. So uh, uh, the, the previous study and previous uh, uh, research about energy consumption of cloud computing, which most of them uh, promote uh, cloud applications uh, as a green technology and uh, green application, uh, they didn't count the energy consumed in the transport network. But here we notice it's uh, significant and it's not, it shouldn't be ignored. Facebook um, does um, take uh, Facebook is taking care of Facebook data centers, and they tr- they are trying to uh, keep the energy consumption of Facebook data centers. Uh, very low, but uh, uh, then the energy consumption of in transport network that no one take care of this part is okay. very high, and, okay. and we should take action and um, and work toward uh, reducing energy consumption of transport network and end user devices as well as data centers. Okay, um, are there Facebook data centers in Australia, or does everything travel? to the United States? Yeah, mostly United States and I think just a few in the Europe. And why are photos, sharing photos and uploading photos, why is that such a large part of it, do you think? Uh, be- because it's a very popular feature of Facebook that user wants to share uh, their um, their activities and their memories by photos. Um, we, we all, it's a good point because we didn't consider, for example, uh, chat in Facebook or playing game in Facebook just for photo sharing uh, the energy consumption this high. But, but if we consider other uh, features of Facebook, it will be higher. Mm. 
how do you think that the costs of using Facebook could be reduced or what, what would you suggest are ways to um, bring down the emissions impact? Um, f- from the study that we've done, uh, this study can inform a uh, network designer for future energy efficient uh, design of transport network between end user and data centers and also it can inform um, end-user devices. For example, end-user devices uh, can use Wi-Fi instead of uh, 4G or 3G to uh, consume less amount of energy. Because for uh, most of uh, user Facebook are mobile uh, users. And mobile users, they use Wi-Fi or maybe um, 3G or or 4G. 3G and 4G technology consume high amount of energy compared to Wi-Fi. If if users have uh, uh, this opportunity to use Wi-Fi, it's better to uh, use Wi-Fi instead of 4G or 3G technology. Uh, for example, if you're at home, you have Wi-Fi at home, it's better to turn off your TG and use Wi-Fi. Yeah, because connecting to 4G LTE-based station, it's very uh, power-consuming task, and uh, and the modems are, uh, can be connected by cable to the core of the network that would be most energy efficient. And also, if a user can share their Wi-Fi with other users, uh, it would be more energy efficient. This is Earth Matters, and we're in conversation with Fatima Jalali and Kerry Hinton from the Centre for Energy Efficient Telecommunications at the University of Melbourne. Fatima has been talking about the environmental impact of using social media sites with a focus on Facebook in particular. Um, I'm, I read that some companies are becoming quite aware of their uh, power usage and are uh, um, transferring their energy from um, coal to renewable sources. Apple is sort of making a bit of noise about the fact that they're um, trying to make some of their data centres in the United States powered from 100% renewable energy. Do you think this actually um, kind of offsets the cost of the internet or is this a bit of greenwashing? Um, I, I believe that the, the endeavours by organisations such as uh, Apple and Google to move to uh, low or if possible zero carbon footprint are, are sincere but at the end of the day these companies are addressing a small component of a much bigger issue. Um, the thing is that as Fatima said Facebook controls Facebook data centres and Facebook, along with those other companies, are doing a, a, a lot of work to try and minimise the power consumption of their data centres. Now, to an extent, you could say uh, the issue of environmental sustainability is not and doesn't have to be front and centre with them. The cost of running these things, a, a large data centre, is huge, primarily because of electricity cost. Okay, so they have an interest in reducing their carbon footprint, not just to be more environmentally sustainable, but also there's a lot of economics behind it as well. Okay, so. That's okay if we look at the data centres and the big facilities. Um, there are a few companies that build these things and they are very careful about it. If we then look at the core network, uh, there's a group of companies which build equipment for core network, for example, Cisco and Alcatel, Lucent and a range of others. These companies also realise electricity consumption is a big issue. In fact, some of the, the big machines in the heart of the, of the internet, so-called core routers, are already running into thermal limits. They're getting too hot. And that all comes down to power consumption. So these companies that build these big pieces of equipment, they're also very focused on improving energy efficiency. But as you move out further and further to the consumer, 
the thing is what you find is the market becomes more and more fragmented. And by that I mean that there are more and more people who make them, more and more companies that resell them, and less centralised focus on energy because the energy consumption, say, of the router in the corner of your house, it may be only two or three watts, right? So, well, it doesn't even appear on your electricity bill. But if you multiply that by a couple of hundred million, because that's how many there are, that adds up, and someone's got to provide that electricity. So the problem here is that if you run a data centre, the electricity bill is a huge bill right in front of you, right? But if you have a modem in your house, you don't even see it. But there's millions and millions of people just like you who are not taking any notice. You add that up, you've got a problem. And so what we find is that to really get a handle on the overall power consumption of, of ICT, internet and communications technologies, we need to move away from worrying about data centres to worrying about access networks, equipment in houses and all that kind of stuff. And that is very, very hard to control. It actually, my personal view is that it requires some form of regulation to encourage people to start thinking about these issues. Mm. Yeah, and that makes, makes me wonder what the centre here, what you would advocate for um, for the future because obviously everything is changing so fast and we can't predict um, what's, what's going to happen. And I read that there's estimated to be 50 billion devices connected to the internet by the year 2020, which is not very far away, and that's something like six devices per person. Yeah. So how do you how do you deal with that? Yeah, well, um, uh, we're aware of those forecasts. There are lots of forecasts around. In fact, 50 is one of the lower ones. There are up to 200 billion by forecast by some. Now, whether or not that, you know, the actual number of 200 billion eventuates may not be the big issue. The big issue is, is uh, can we sustain whatever we deploy? And, and this, I guess, is my perspective, the important one, will we be constrained by the limits to the growth of this thing in such a way that it reduces the ability of this technology to enhance human, the human condition? Um, and when I say human condition, I don't just mean, say, um, first world average consumers. We talk about the whole planet, including developing nations, because the Internet of Things could provide substantial social and environmental benefits to the, to the um, third developing nations. So we could be in a situation where, if not careful, we will be so constrained um, by the limits to what we can do due to not caring about what the future holds that we will find those constraints. I should say the deployment of, of information technologies in developing nations is a major challenge. Um, for example, in India... I think it's about 300 base stations run on diesel fuel. Now, that's, of course, not very environmentally sustainable. Um, and the reason for that, though, is that the demand for information technology is so great, they have to build these base stations to satisfy the demand of the um, Indian population. And, of course, India has a growing economy, has, has a lot of people who would greatly benefit uh, environmentally and personally from uh, having access to information technology. But... The challenge there is that they just cannot deploy the electrical cables needed to power the base stations from mains power. The mains power system is just not reliable enough. Mm. So you've got a choice. You either deny these people access to this information technology, which could enhance their lives, or you build a, let's say, less than best solution, which is the diesel-powered um, base stations, to try and at least get it out there. In India, the number of mobile connections far exceeds the number of, of the number of cabled copper connections because that is the best technology to get access to most people quickest so they can benefit from it. But we then have to face the, the environmental challenge of doing this, getting this kind of short-term solution out there but not finding that we kind of go down the wrong path so that in the long term we find we really do kind of cause a bit of damage to the, to the world environment. Mm. And it's difficult to know where responsibility lies as well for all of this. Is it in governments? Is it companies? Is it the internet providers? Is it on the consumers? How do you 
where do you look for, for regulation and for how to keep some kind of cap on all of this? To an extent, the, the, the people who are looking forward uh, on this uh, all year around, for example, the European community, already has uh, a standard on access equipment. So they are already demanding uh, that, that companies who build things like home modems and home equipment, that uh, these uh, companies build into them um, what we call idle or sleep states. So just to explain what that means, when you're at home on the internet, okay, you're typing away on your computer and your little DSL router is sitting in the corner sending information forwards and backwards between you and, and the internet. So you beaver away, it comes 10 o'clock, it's time to go to bed, you pack up and go to bed. Well, most people just leave the, the modem router running. It's on 24-7, but it's doing nothing for about 8 to 10 hours a day. And today, when that happens, the machine continues to chew up about 4 or 5 watts. Whether or not you're there is irrelevant, it just keeps going through that amount of power. What the European Commission is saying, look, this is not good enough, all that idle power is wasted power, so then when you leave the machine alone and you go to bed, we require the machine to then go into a very low power state, less than a watt, in fact, in some cases, much less than a watt. So that means that if we can get that standby or idle power down or sleep power right down really nice and low, then basically, automatically, the system becomes more energy efficient because every time someone walks away from the machine to have dinner or go to sleep, the machine automatically drops into a low power state. This in itself would make a substantial contribution to improving the energy efficiency of the internet. That sounds to me like it would be quite easy, or that technology is, isn't too far away. It's not hard. Uh, we've got a group here who are studying it, and you can actually get these things to sleep for very short times, even down to a millisecond. Wow. So th- there is a lot of work that can be done there. The, the thing is that um, we're kind of, in this context, a, a prisoner of our own history. When the internet was first built, energy was not an issue. Okay? Um, the internet was such a small thing that people just put it and you couldn't even see it. But as we know from the kind of general plots of number of users of the internet, it's taken off exponentially over the last couple of decades. So now what's happened, of course, is that people have suddenly realised, well, actually, yeah, OK, it was all right back then, but unless we do something now, as we said a few minutes ago in this conversation, we'll find that we get limited. And so it's just a matter of the, the policy thinkers and that starting to respond to that issue. That's all we have time for on this week's edition of Earth Matters. The environmental impact of the internet is somewhat out of sight, out of mind. But as our lives become more and more intertwined and dependent on it, we need to take stock, consider the costs and how we can do it better. Many thanks to our guests, Kerry Hinton and Fatima Jalali from the Centre for Energy Efficient Telecommunications at the University of Melbourne. To find out more, head to allofthews.ceet.unimelb.edu.au. Earth Matters would like to thank the Community Broadcasting Foundation for their generous financial support and the Community Radio Network for all their hard work in getting this program out to you, our listeners. Earth Matters was produced in the studios at 3CR Radio in Fitzroy, Victoria and broadcast all over these stolen lands we call Australia on the Community Radio Network. Our contact phone number is 03 9419 and our email address is earthmatters3cr at gmail.com. The music you've heard on this week's show is the Internet Song by Hulls and Raisins and Internet Beatdown 1993 by Polish Ambassador. I'm Jem Rommeld. Thanks for your attention, and we'll be talking at you again next week on Earth Matters. Login accepted. Now initializing Dell's charge computer system. I need to log on. I need to log on. Turn my computer on. Turn my computer on. 
of anti-nuclear, peace and sustainability issues on the Radioactive Show. 10am Saturdays on 3CR Community Radio, 855 on your AM dial. Genocide here is a lot more sneaky than it is in Rwanda or other places around the world. It's one thing Whitefellas learnt in the last 200 years to be very sneaky about their genocide. You look at the 38 nations that were here before white settlement and then you count up the numbers that are still surviving, still out there doing their business on their country. Well, there's only 25 left, so what happened to the other 13? Let's talk about the Black GST. Genocide to be stopped, sovereignty acknowledged and treaties made. Tune in to Fire First every Wednesday from 11am till 12 midday on 3CR with Robbie Thorpe. 